Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. Investigate beautifully detailed scenes of the 1920s, finding out what happened to her or your in the game, sister. With hundreds of mind-teasing puzzles, the next clue is always within reach. Search for hidden objects from the parlours of New York to the sidewalks of Paris. Each chapter uncovers a collection of dazzling hidden object spectacles for you to solve, and I've had a lot of fun. Currently on chapter 7, making progress little by little, tapping away on my phone to get all the puzzle pieces in place. While searching for the murderer, or whatever happened to your sister, you get to decorate your own island with gardens and buildings and chat and play with other Others by joining a detective club. It's a lot of fun and very social. I play while I'm on the train. It keeps me active between my journeys to London and I love the time limits that are pushing me to find those clues. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. It is hard when you've been trolled for the 10th time consecutively in an hour and all of these people are uh, card-carrying woke activists with pronouns in their bio. It's hard not to jump to the conclusion that they're all sociopaths. You know, it's it's hard not to read, but you have to guard against it because that, that too is a fallacy. Hello and welcome to another episode of On The Edge with Andrew Gold. Today I'm talking, well, well actually I spoke to him a couple of weeks ago, to Andrew Doyle who has just released his new book, Free Speech. It's like a modern manifesto on why free speech is so important and how even extremely offensive speech should be protected. You can find a link to it in the show notes. It's a really beautifully written sort of essay which draws on the history of free speech and how it's being eroded from all sides bit by bit. We're all aware that history seems to go in cycles and you never know when you're next going to be under some sort of authoritarian regime. And according to Andrew, it rarely comes from the place you expect it. And he believes we're very much at risk right now from the censors on the left, although he is politically left himself. That is, he sees cynicism, infantilism and sociopathy hidden under the guise of seemingly unoffensive groups supporting things like inclusive language, critical race theory and the public shaming of anyone who fails to adhere to increasingly strict rules on morality. As it happens, a fascinating scientific paper at the University of British Columbia was just published showing that sociopaths and narcissists are far more likely to virtue signal and that virtue signalers, in general, were more likely to cheat and lie than control groups. So perhaps it's time to stop taking them at face value. In his book and on the podcast, Andrew speaks of old essays, such as John Stuart Mill's On Liberty in 1859 and John Milton's 1644 Areopagitica. So make sure to read up on those as homework. Just kidding, they're, they're, quite, um, they're quite intense, so just maybe just get the free speech one from Andrew first. Start with that. Andrew was also a teacher and writes about all sorts of things, but you may know him as both the creator of fictional angry news reporter Jonathan Pye although he's not the actor who plays him, and fictional Twitter profile, Titania McGrath. Titania is a fake creation who tweets to parody the beliefs and actions of critical race theorists and virtue signalers. Her Twitter bio reads, activist, healer, radical intersectionalist poet, non-white, ecosexual, pronouns variable, selfless and brave, buy my books. 
The profile itself has amassed over 600,000 followers, including some very big names. But today we're going to talk mostly about Andrew and his book, although we do go into Titania for the last half an hour or so. On the day I spoke to him, he had just come under a barrage of abuse from his critics because he had blocked some of them in anticipation of the book. They believed it was hypocritical for an author of a book on free speech to block those who opposed the book. And Andrew countered that if they believed that, they had a very poor understanding of what free speech entails. Part of free speech is the right to not have to listen to someone. All of that said, it is of course important to be nice to people, to recognise inequalities and to treat people equally regardless of any intrinsic aspect of their person. If you are somebody who sympathises with the critical race theorists, then I encourage you to hear Andrew out because that's what he wants. He wants to create a debate and he wants to speak to the other side. On the podcast today, we talk about the pressure of getting all that flack all the time on Twitter. People accusing him of absolutely every form of bigotry. Andrew is, by the way, gay, and I ask him what it's like to be a gay man accused so often of homophobia, and we talk freely about free speech. Many of you will have noticed that ads are finally up and running in this podcast, creeping in, aren't they? They're just creeping in there, these bloody ads. I hope they're not too much of an inconvenience, but if you want the ads-free podcast, go to patreon.com slash andrewgold. I've redesigned it all again, and there are new options starting at just £1 or like $1.00. 20 or something, with perks including the ads-free podcast, early release and bonus content, of which I have almost 20 minutes today from Andrew that will be exclusive for patrons. But for now, as free as the freest of free speech, here's Andrew Doyle. How's your day going? It looks like you're having getting shit from everyone. I'm recording already, by the way. Is that all right? It's just sort of it's funny. Um, I'm being sort of trolled and piled on by all these blue check check academics on Twitter. It's utterly hilarious. They they don't know what free speech means, <laughs> and so of course they they're all getting very upset and uptight. And uh, you know, a lot of the people who follow me are pointing out what it means, and and they're instead of saying, "Oh yeah, fine," they're doubling down. It's really funny. On it, it's genuine. I've ne- I've never seen the like. I'm and I know because you know I've come from an academic background, so I know there's a lot of immaturity and a lot of bitterness amongst certain types of academics but i have not seen this level of childish behavior in my life it's it's genuinely hilarious does it get to you because i've had a few little tiffs and i don't have anything like that kind of uh, following so i mean what's it like for you yeah it can do this sort of thing doesn't get to me because it's they're they're being they're so obviously self-discrediting um it, it gets to me a bit more if if um when it becomes threatening when it's more aggressive um when people are sort of you know uh just just behaving like that's a psychopath these people are just stupid uh, mm. and they think because they've got a phd that their stupidity is somehow masked it's actually uh, accentuated by all accounts um i mean there's even the guy who runs the ash no the guy who runs the pitt rivers museum uh in oxford he even started complaining made a proper tantrum about the fact that i blocked him and tagged in my publisher saying this is a book on free speech and he's blocked me and he tagged in my publishers so this is this is the the fundamental distinction now it isn't just people complaining or criticizing or getting involved they they want to see your work damaged they want to see your livelihood that's a typical tactic of cancel culture but he would be precisely the kind of idiot that would claim that cancel culture is a is a myth in fact i think i've seen him say precisely that um it's honestly it's it's something else and i think it, it all of this points to a real degradation of our universities particularly our humanities 
uh, like a friend of mine texted me this morning saying, you know, it's it's really upsetting, isn't it? When you see when you see these accounts and you think, has a 12 year old got hold of their parents phone or is it a professor of sociology? You know, mm. and, and that is a really disturbing. Uh, that's how far we've gone. That's how far the malaise has set in and, the, and how far this ideology has spread throughout higher education. It's it's a real shame, but it might be. And now, of course, that it's moving out of the humanities and sort of that, you know, there's this pleased to sort of decolonize maths and science it might be the case that the universities are just over and we have to wait we have to sort of start from scratch that might have to happen um but who knows i forgot to ask um have you got headphones or something just so i don't hear my yeah yeah, yeah i do i do have headphones sorry about Not that very good uh but they will do the job probably okay anyway how, how are you how are things i'm good thank you yeah stuff's good just putting everything on silent yeah i think it's the first time a podcast guest asked how i am i'm, I'm slightly flabbergasted and lost for words well, surely everyone should ask it. it's a called an english pleasantry <laughs> well you know how it is when you, when you go on someone else's show you get it, it is a bit flustering i get a bit flustered going on someone's show because i don't know oh are we started yet should i ask them a question you don't know what to do i only get flustered because of the technology to be honest but well there's that but, as well yeah I'm, you, I'm learning as i go as well in the headphones it's just like sometimes it my own voice bounces back while they're talking and it's just the, it's the hardest so, thing in the world to edit. And is this better mm. now with this on? I don't know because I, I, I won't hear the problem. It's only in editing right. that I then hear my voice do on you your side. Re- do you want me to record my own side of the conversation? If, if you're able to, that would be great if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah. Um, cool. I should ask you some questions yourself because this is, I mean, you're the guest, aren't you? I shouldn't just talk about myself. But I'm happy to sit here and just <laughs> listen to your stories. Really, that's fine. Yeah. I'm, yeah. You know, I'm quite tired today. So... I'm fine. That's that would be quite fun, actually. Yeah, you do start a lot with of where you grew well. up. <laughs> I do, I do, and I just I I end up you know saying yeah. the same things and talking about the same things, and in a way it's okay. quite refreshing. Tell me just about you're from Northern Northern Ireland. You don't have a Northern Irish accent. I'm well. I mean, my family are from Northern Ireland, but I I didn't ah. grow up in Northern Ireland. I grew up here. But that's why then. That would be why. Yeah. I it's my favourite accent. Is it really? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, uh, I remember. I remember when I was at school. I remember when I was at school. My my friends used to hear my mother talking, uh, th- like when I was on the phone and stuff in the background, and the, and they thought she was Scottish. Ah. Actually, there's some because the, the Northern Irish accent is a kind of halfway house between Scottish and Irish, largely because of the, uh, obviously the Presbyterian plantation and everything. You know, it, ma- it makes sense. But um, yeah, that's your that's your favourite accent. I don't know what my favourite accent is. I quite mm. like well Welsh is quite nice. Welsh is brilliant. I like American accents actually. I've always had a thing about American mm. accents. Min- like Minnesota. That. Any of them. I can't really mm. tell. I don't do that. Oh, uh, well, the Minnesota's like the Fargo accent. You know that? Is oh, it? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, no, I like the New York, the proper kind of... Okay. New York. Ex- like, yeah, coffee, that thing they do. I can't <laughs> do it, but they do a kind of, You know, when they add a Y That's quite coffee. good. Yeah. Yeah, I like, I like all of that business. I thought it was a W. Coffee. Coffee. Yeah, something like that. But coffee. I like, yeah, that. I love being in, I love being in America. It, it feels like yeah. you're on a movie set. Yeah, it does. You know, it? everything it's feels amazing. slightly detached from reality i was in um la for politicon politicon i think that's what it's called it's like comic con but for politics uh. and that was uh i was making a tv show that was about was that two years ago no geez it might be three or four i mean i don't know what's happened to you know tempest fujit and all that but i was there and um that was great and and, and we i met a lot of people from all across the political aisles i met a lot of people in maga hats which i never had before and i just assumed uh, that, that you know, I had my presumptions, my prejudices about those people, and and uh, those were exploded just by talking to a few of them and realizing actually some people just vote differently and have have different views about the world, and they're very intelligent 
they just disagree. And and what was really nice about that whole conference is that people were honestly from all sides of the political spectrum generally getting on. I mean, there are a few big rows. I remember seeing a very big row. Cenk Huger from the Young Turks had a massive row, like screaming at Charlie Kirk. I think there was a big screaming match or something like that. But on the whole, people were, were, were good. And I saw Ben Shapiro giving a talk. And what he did, which I really admired, he did, he, um, he, he, you know, when people want to ask questions at the end and he got everyone to, to anyone who wanted to ask a question could come and stand in the queue in the middle of the, uh, the hall. But he asked specifically for anyone from the left or anyone who disagreed with his perspective to move to the front of the queue. And then when they did ask him questions, he was extremely courteous. Like he <laughs> wasn't at all trying to belittle them. He wasn't trying to score points. He, he, he would say, thank you for your concern. I understand where you come. And, and it was really a sort of lesson in uh, how to have political dialogue. And uh, people, lots of people mischaracterize him and, and, and yeah. such. But that I thought was really impressive. Even though one of the women who asked the question had a, a Ben Shapiro is overrated T-shirt on. He was even polite to her. Um, so I thought that was I thought that was really great. And I don't agree with a lot of things he says. And yeah. I thought that was a really good, really impressive performance, actually. I think I have a bit of a bias against uh, Ben Shapiro because oh, yes. I come from a Jewish secular family. And I mm-hmm. think I, I'm, you know, I think a little bit like how some maybe secular people from maybe a Muslim background or something might feel when there's a terrorist attack or something. That's how I feel when like a Harvey Weinstein or Woody Allen pops on the scene. Um, oh, really? And I know, obviously, Ben Shapiro is not the same as a Harvey Weinstein character. It really kind of isn't. No. <laughs> no, but it's a lot of stuff about, there's a lot of religion. There's a lot of, you know, and he's wearing the thing. He has the thing as well. And it just, it, it already makes well, me, because I, I, I want to distance myself from that so much. Oh, I see. He's Orthodox yeah. Jewish. Is that because yeah. he's more Jewish than you? Is that how you much feel? More. <laughs> much more. And you just feel a bit in- insecure. That's like how I feel when I'm in front, when I'm with a really flamboyant gay man. I just think I'm not gay enough anymore. I just, I can't compete, you know. People are kicking off at you for being homophobic on Twitter. I love it. I love it. There's a guy, some yeah. idiot who writes for The Guardian called Casper Salmon. I'm not even making that name up. Uh, he's, yeah. he's having a go at me, calling me homophobic. I love oh. it. These people don't even do basic research. It's, wow. it's, I mean, that's the thing about identity politics, though, is if you, if you decide that your opponent shouldn't be listened to or does not, ha- does not have the right to opine on a certain subject because of their anything to do with their demographic, straight, white, male, whatever, as soon as you then meet a person who doesn't have those characteristics, who has that opinion, though, you're stuck. Yeah. Where, you, know, you can't dismiss them anymore. You, you have completely derailed your own point of view. And, and similarly, if you're just going to degrade someone, call someone homophobic, uh, and then you find out they're gay. You look like an idiot, don't you? Yeah. Um, it's but there's a self-hating thing, isn't there? What? What? So I, I had, I found, you know, Jeremy Corbyn recently quite troubling. I, I actually voted for him the first time around, and I started so to did find I. more the anti-Semitism stuff and all that. And I found him um, quite difficult. And and what kept popping up over and over again on Twitter with people saying, as a Jew, and they were then using that to defend Jeremy Corbyn. So that can be troubling on the other side, I suppose. I mean, I I voted for him first first time around. I'm I'm not really in a position to talk about the the anti-Semitism thing, I'm fully aware uh, that uh, wh- I, there was a study, wasn't there, that showed how many UK Jewish people felt that he had anti-Semitic views. Um, mm. So I'm torn on that because, of course, there's obviously there are obviously anti-Semites within the party. He himself, as far as I'm aware, hasn't ever said anything uh, anti-Semitic. Mm. However, then I did see him on Andrew Neil confronted with an explicitly anti-Semitic trope and he re- sort of refused to say it. Well, he did say mm. it. There was the painting. It it might have been the painting. I don't think it was the painting. Mm. It was something else. But it it took it took quite a while for him to admit it. Uh, and I think it was because he was nervous about the people in his party. And you know, I mean, one of the reasons I liked him early on is that I felt he just said what he thought. 
and wasn't sort of putting everything through this PR spin. And that's where I really became disillusioned because it, that went away within like a, a year, didn't it? And he started just towing the party line, started talking about Brexit. We know that he's opposed to the EU. That was, that, that was sort of mm. so fundamental in his political career for 40 years, yeah. his fundamental visceral opposition to the EU. So then when he started saying that he supported it and he would vote uh, in favour of Remain, I knew that couldn't be true. I knew that it couldn't be true that he could stand in that ballot box and vote Remain. Of course he voted Leave. Mm. And and therefore, well, I mean, I don't know for sure. I don't know 100%. But it would be a major turnaround, wouldn't it, if, if after 40 years of campaigning the other way, he would suddenly... Uh, switch like that so you know by the end I actually thought he was useless I I, Mm. I did I thought he was useless by the end we should get on to your book yeah I loved it I loved the book I really really enjoyed it is it is it a book is it an essay a dissertation what what led you to write this I mean it's more I suppose it's a a short book isn't it um but I didn't want to write uh you know I I think with something as foundational as free speech it's quite nice to write something that's quite pithy and to the point, and, and I didn't want to be in a position where I was writing words that I didn't feel had to be in there. And that's why it's a short book that just covers what I felt needed to be covered. And I feel that it has a greater rhetorical effect that way. I didn't want any padding, you know. Um, I mean, I'm writing another book about the culture war and that will require, uh, to it'll be a longer book because it has to be a longer book because there's more to cover in that. But I think if you look back at all of the major tracts that, that deal with freedom of speech, things like On Liberty and things like Areopagitica, uh, they are uh, short, concise, um, and and they're, and they're pushed. And obviously, I'm not comparing what I've written to those, but but it is mm. a kind of it, it's that that's that is the stand that is the standard. That's the style that I was going for. A sort of rhetorical pamphlet, but it's not really a pamphlet because it's much longer than a pamphlet. But that's the idea. And I think because so many people, as I've seen from all the trolling I've had from these strange academics recently, it's it's so many people even in high positions of society even in respected cultural positions don't understand the basics of what free speech mean they just don't get it and 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 there are so many misconceptions and so you'll notice in the book i i do address a lot of the misconceptions pretty much head on mm. um because they're just too pervasive and it and it's almost it, it feels as though we need to go back to square one on this you know i i'm a big believer in education i'm a big believer that a lot of our problems are down to poor educational standards people are reaching adulthood without the capacity to think critically or to argue like adults. They can only throw insults. They can only use their ad hominem to quote smears and fallacies. They can't just engage with the argument and the discussion. And hmm. that is a sign of infantilism on a massive scale. We have an infantile culture and that includes prominent people in politics, education, higher education. Uh, you know, however intelligent these people are, no doubt they are. They have an infantile mind. And that hmm. is because they have been insufficiently socialized and and um and 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 they don't know how to think critically. They can only follow a script, an accepted script, and that's what you see in what we call woke wokeism, wokeness, whatever you want to call it. That like every ideology, every religious and political ideology is a script for you to follow, which which uh, alleviates you of the obligation to think for yourself because someone else is thinking for you, and that is what we're facing, and that's why one of the reasons I wanted to write the book. Of course, the people who should read the book most won't. Yeah, I was going to ask that. <laughs> I was going to ask you who you think might read it because you also you do build up, you do a very good job of building up the other side. It's not a case of just uh, you know, really saying free speech free speech and then and then everyone who doesn't agree with me is an idiot and so on. You really do build up the case. There are moments where you talk about okay, this is why, you know, free speech can be hurtful. It can be difficult for people to take. 
but I think you always side on on the idea that but it's it's a you know it's the lesser evil you know the greater evil is impinging on speech. That's exactly what it is. I have complete sympathy with the idea that words can hurt people's feelings. I know they can. I wouldn't be I'd be a sociopath if I wasn't aware of that. And I'm and I think I'm also aware that speech can be abused to to horrible ends. And um and so I wanted to take that seriously. I'm not in the I'm not in the business of just completely discarding what what my opponents think because that would make me a, an incredible hypocrite. I want to be able to talk to other people of different views. I mean, obviously, you've seen me on Twitter today getting trolled, and obviously, I'm quite snarky back. But but that's just yeah. because I'm playing their game. I think if someone comes in and starts throwing insults, then I'll play the game back, and that's I'll mimic their behaviour to make a point. In other mm. words, if anyone comes to me politely and disagrees, I will always uh, engage politely back, and I think that's that should be the rule generally. If someone comes in and throws insults, I think you should just block them. I, I you know, and that yeah. that upsets them a lot as well. A lot of this is about people saying that if you block them, you're violating their free speech. Such a basic misunderstanding. You know, this, this idea that, 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 that you, as you know, free speech, part of free speech, a very important part, is the freedom not to listen, to choose who you talk to. Uh, and as I say in the book, if, if, if you're claiming that me blocking you on social media is the equivalent of me threatening your free speech, that's like saying that I'm threatening Stephen King's free speech by not reading his novels. Although, as it happens, I have read a few of his novels. But mm. that's, that's my point. So, you know, the, that idea... Um, it's so fundamental and such a, a weird error that even a child will know, <laughs> to be honest. So yeah. it's just weird to have that spouted back at you by people with, with, with uh, doctoral degrees. You know, it's, 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 it's a sad sign of where we are. But yes, absolutely. I do want to take on board the other side. Yeah, that's, that's why I, I, I want them to be. I want people who are sceptical about free speech to read the book. I've written it in such a way that they won't feel alienated. I'm not slagging them off. I'm, not, I'm, I'm coming from a position of sympathy. And yet they won't read it. Let's be absolutely honest. They, they won't read it. And, and it's the same reason that if a friend of mine sent me uh, a white privilege, I wouldn't read it. And I should. I should engage what, with it what, and read it. Do you mean white fragility? Yeah, sorry. White fragility. And then all, all those kinds of books. <laughs> well, I have read that. Uh, I've, I mean, yeah. I, I read all those books. I've read How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. I've read uh, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race by Rennie Edo-Lodge. I read yeah. all of these books. I recently read one called Is Free Speech Racist by Gavin Titley, who's one of those... Uh, really unhinged academics. He's he's up there with the uh, Priyamvada Gopals of the world. The ones that they they, I mean, their fundamental mm. point is that they think because free speech can be abused by racists, that for that therefore makes free speech racist. Now that in of itself is one of the most basic argumentative fallacies that you can have. If I was still teaching critical thinking at A level, that would be you'd be failing on day one for that. And yet these are professors and sociologists and academics at Cambridge as mm. Gopal is you know and it's so you know, why is that why are why are academics and people why is it so common this because, this school of thought because they're part of this religious cult and, and they're not thinking clearly and they're not thinking for themselves it's, you know I, I mean that's the only reason I can th- I'm not saying they don't sincerely believe what they're saying I think they do but I think mm. they've bought into this postmodern worldview where language is all important and our our perception of reality is wholly constructed through language and therefore mm. They think that language is a threat and language is dangerous. And, you know, again, my sympathy with Gopal and T- and Gavin Titley and, and the others and Kahindi Andrews, my sympathy with them is that I abhor racism and I see that I, I would prefer to live in a society where it, it no longer existed. So I, we have a baseline shared value. Um, what they don't understand is that their approach, which is the critical race theory uh, intersectional approach, is making racism worse. It, it is making culture more racist, not less, and and so therefore, it, the the it is the yeah. liberal approach. It is social liberalism that has a proven track record of working. It doesn't totally eliminate the problem, 
but it certainly doesn't exacerbate the problem in the way that critical race theory does, for instance. So um, it's 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 not a disagreement about about where we want to be. It's a disagreement about how we get there, and I think yeah. that's a key that's a key distinction. Yes. What is a well-intentioned authoritarian? And aren't all authoritarians? I got that from your book. Aren't all authoritarians well-intentioned? Mostly. No, I don't think. I don't think so. I think you know, there's there are good selfish reasons to have authoritarian values. You know, mm. I don't believe that. Uh, Idi Amin was well-intentioned uh, or, you know, I, I don't, well, maybe, maybe he thought what he was doing was right. Maybe, you know, I mean, yeah. this, this, that's what I a, think. It's a standard ethical argument, isn't it? With Hitler, Hitler probably thought he was doing good, etc. all the rest of it. Well, maybe, maybe not. How do I know? I'm not, I'm not, I can't look into hmm. someone's secret thoughts. Um, uh, but a well-intentioned, yes. Yeah, so maybe you're right. Maybe all authoritarians are well-intentioned. Um, so maybe it is a, uh, a futile phrase but i just think it's quite a useful phrase because i think it's worth mm. reminding ourselves that those who are currently pushing for further restrictions on speech who are pushing for further hate speech laws and authoritarian measures to prevent freedoms individual autonomy that a lot mm. of it comes from a good place and that's so even if it is redundant even if it should be taken for granted that it's well intentioned i think spelling it out like that is quite useful because um yeah if we if we go in on look it's obviously the case that some people uh, on the woke side, if you want to call it a side, I don't like to, but let's go with it. A lot of them have malicious qualities as human beings, and uh, you know, uh, uh, there's a high proportion of just not very nice people. Let's be honest, they're people who like power. They've got a bit mm. of a power trip. They like they like bullying. Uh, you know, there's a kind of human instinct that gets off on bullying. There's there's something about you see that in children all the time, and because a lot of these people have a kind of infantile arrested development when it comes to critical faculties you can see why they enjoy bullying people and stuff. And there is that a high preponderance of that. Um, but I think I'm not going to assume that that's someone's motive. I'm going to assume the opposite. I'm going to assume that, that this comes from a place of sincerity. However hard that is. I remember talking to Peter Bogosian about this, who's been attacked mercilessly by, by some people who vandalised his office and did all sorts of just horrendous uh, stuff, personal attacks, you know. It's hard. It's hard to take the humane higher ground on that and say, you know, these people mean well. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, but maybe they authentically believe they, they do. But if that's the case, either way, it's it's disturbing. But that's actually, in a sense, more disturbing when people are bullying and, and behaving in this horrendous, violent, often violent way, desperate to get people sacked, fired, destroy people's lives. You know, cancel culture is about revenge. It is not about uh, criticism. It is not about standing up against, you know, holding people to account, as they mm. like to claim. It is about revenge. That's yeah. you get that very clear retributive quality and the enjoyment Sorry, that's the enjoyment of and the enjoyment of well. it yeah the enjoyment yeah. of public shame exactly it's, it's the witch in the, yeah, we love doing it's that. putting someone in the stocks again it's throwing the mm. fruit and it, it's it's yeah it's it's very base it's a base instinct but i but i'm not going to assume that that's the intention until i see evidence i mean if there's a clear evidence then fine but yeah. let's just start from the let's start from the the baseline that we're all basically good most people are good that's the thing we've got to remember most people are and it's a boring truth most people are just quite nice. And and even the people who send abuse to me on Twitter on a daily basis, even threats to me, if I met them and if we got to talk, we'd probably get on. And, and yeah. it, you know, that is... For a start, they're attacking someone who doesn't exist. They're attacking this figment of their imagination. They've decided I'm something I'm not. And also they're behaving in a way that doesn't match their own persona. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of... It's it's almost like a mob mentality. It's the thrill of, yeah. of, 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 of you're in this forum where your terrible behavior can be legitimized and your worst, the worst possible version of yourself 
can be encouraged to flourish and therefore that's never going to be a good a good thing is it yeah i i had a, i had this friend that i used to live with um a girl i knew and she used to never do any of the cleaning up and washing up or anything like that she never did anything nice oh. around the house and i remember her sitting and she was like extremely like ultra ultra wealthy the wealthiest person i know went did like amazing you know went to you know top university top every top, top everything you can imagine super yeah. woke person and she used to like be sitting there with her super elite friends and I would be like cleaning up after her in the house. Yeah. And she'd sort of laugh and look over and go, well, the thing about Andrew is like he does things like the washing up and cleaning up, but I care much more about like homeless people wow. who are poor and stuff like that. Yeah. And <laughs> I just remember thinking like- Not much self-awareness then. Yeah, well, that's what it is. And it's amazing what you're, what you're saying. I think it is that they're sort of, they're able to bully and be lazy and have their own flaws in day-to-day life under the guise mm. of, but I'm a great person. And I right. wonder if you agree with this, what I've been thinking is like the worst branding or marketing mistake that the non-woke have ever made is to use the word snowflake to describe the woke people because they as you say i mean they're bullies they want to be a snowflake that's the best thing you can say to them go well yes i'm a very caring individual thank you for yeah thank you very much that's what needs to be addressed doesn't it yeah that's why the the, the snowflake slur is rhetorically ineffective i you know that's why i never use it yeah. uh that's one of the reasons and uh in fact but now, most of the time I see that word used, it's actually coming from woke people themselves. They've now taken the word and they use it against... Basically, whenever whenever someone blocks them or something, say, oh, lol, you're a snowflake. Whatever. Yeah. It's mostly coming from woke people. They're the ones who use the, the snowflake term because they've got it in their heads that anyone who opposes them commonly uses the phrase. Actually, it's become quite rare on the anti-woke side to use, to use snowflake. Um, just because I think people have come to realise that we're not going to get anywhere if we're just throwing insults. We're, we're just not... Um, and, you know, there's a place for it, I suppose, but it's not my thing. I'm not interested in that. I'll only do it if someone's done it to me first and I want to show them up and I want to, I want them to understand their own behaviour. That's the only time I'll ever do it. It's like being heckled in a comedy club. You know, I don't mm. pick on someone in a comedy club and be mean to them. But if someone's gone into me, it, it gives a licence. You have to then, you have to, you have to do it. It's a kind of, it's a kind of obligation. What can we learn? There was a great story in your, in your book uh, from Galileo and Milton. Mm-hmm. Yeah, funnily enough, I they met, which is a really weird thing. They met in, uh, mm. in Florence as a Fiesole, which is near, near. If you go to Florence and you go up this big hill, uh, there's it's up there. You can still visit the uh, the house where it, where it took place. But but Mil- um, Milton mentions this meeting with Galileo in his book uh, book this this extended essay Areopagitica, uh, which is a defense of free speech. It's specifically a response to the Licensing Act, which would have seen uh, publications. Uh, passed before a censor, you know, in advance of publication, he sort of saying, no, we should just publish everything, you know. And, um, and he makes the point that, that well, a couple of points he makes. One of them is that, you know, Galileo at that time was under house arrest uh, for, uh, you know, going along with the Copernican um, theory of, of, of uh, that the Earth moves around the sun, right, as you know, yeah. which wasn't a widely accepted theory. It's also not something that Milton supports in the book. It's not about that. It's about the idea that he's under house arrest by the Inquisition for being a free thinker and this is what upsets milton and this is why he mentions him uh specifically and i think that's a very good uh example because what it shows is you know i mean galileo wasn't being polite he was causing a great deal of offense and so therefore the idea that that uh, offense at any given time is a sufficient standard by which to silence someone for the, either the state to censor someone for anyone else to do it is a really historically illiterate idea because some of the most offensive ideas in history have led to the most progress. It is it is almost impossible to achieve 
uh, progress without offending someone. So that that's why uh, I've mentioned that story uh, specifically, because I think it's a very clear example of this. It's a great story. <clears throat> and yeah, I learned a lot then about, I suppose, uh, changing fashions and trends in thoughts. And I suppose I think your point was also that, uh, you know, it's it's only the people who have who've oppressed speech and, and stopped speech that have looked bad looking back in history it's, it's this idea that wisdom wisdom is only contingent on the authorities of the time it's 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 you know what whatever we might today think is a complete heresy something that is completely unspeakable in 100 years time might be the norm we just don't know we don't have that foresight we don't have that capability and it's uh and when you look back at history the ones who always look the worst are those hubristic people who who claim the right to police speech and say where the limits of acceptable thought lie they never look good when we when we have the hindsight of history, and I think it's incredible. One of the things about the um, the social justice movement, or whatever you want to call it, is the incredible chilling certainty that its adherents seem to have. And they just can't. You see all these TikTok videos coming up every now and then, where, where some teenagers like, "You've got to understand, right? That this is." The, and it's like, it's, oh, you've seen a million of them, right? Yeah. And and they're just they're, they're dripping with arrogance. Now, of course, teenagers have that anyway, so that's fine. You give them a bit of a pass for that. But then that same tone is retained by adults by people in their 40s and their 50s who are from that and they 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 just they don't think they don't realize that in 100 years time people are going to be ridiculing what they think this whole woke movement people will be laughing their heads off at this idea that this ever happened and we're talking young people in many generations they're going to say they'll they'll think it's hilarious mm. um so the idea anything we do is is going to age is going to change if you have any awareness of history you know this but the arrogance, the, inc- the incredible narcissism that it must take to think that we've reached this point in humanity, huma- that human beings have been around for God knows how long, because I'm not an evolution, evolutionary biologist. Um, um, and in all that time, we kept getting it wrong. Every, every successive generation got it wrong. But now we're in 2021 <laughs> and we've got it right. We've got all the answers. This is year zero for humanity. And so we can mock and destroy everything from the past. We can destroy the reputations of, of anyone from the past, tear down their statues, rename street just everyone's evil who came before we are the chosen ones we are the pure and everything that comes following us will be the same as what we've decreed it is an incredible again lack of education you cannot be an educated person and not see the 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 sheer folly of that position Mm, and yet you can because many many (laughs) don't see well that's that's right that's how it's that's that's yeah. what disturbs me so much, you know. I want my theory about that. I guess is because I I did uh, English. You did poetry. Did you do English before that literature at university? Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I did. I did. My undergraduate degree was an English degree. My master's degree was an English Renaissance degree, and then my doctorate was English Renaissance poetry. So each each step, I sort of specialised yeah. uh, more and more. I'm glad there isn't another degree because it would end up being just one sonnet one word, or yeah. something. Yeah, you know. So you'll you'll probably relate to this, I'm sure, and you've taught as well, so you'll understand this better than most people, I guess. But I remember my years studying English at university. You are taught to find obviously answers where there aren't any. You're taught to try yeah. and be be the cleverest person in the room. And I was always trying to do that. I would go home and read a book or whatever. And I wanted to come back and tell my teacher in the seminar that I found the most like extravagant, ridiculous uh, reason for like a metaphor. Oh, he you, the reason it was red, <laughs> the dog was red, wasn't because it was angry. It was because of something to do with Cambodia and I don't know what you know. And I yeah, think yeah, if yeah. you're taught to think that way for four or five, you know, your PhD, you're doing what six, seven, ten. 20 years you're in academia and you're always thinking about the most outlandish ridiculous theory and you're not really engaging with the real world do you think that might have something to do with it 
Well, I think with the arts, a lot of the, um, the postmodern, shall we call them, or, or the offshoots of postmodernism, because it's not really postmodernism, they um, they struggle with artistic representation. They don't really get it. Um, and they see everything as motivated by politics and they see every form of artistic expression as a manifestation of the will to power. They see it all about the the, the structures, the power structures, the, the grid, the power grid that Foucault described. That's how they see. So they're not equipped to understand or appreciate works of art. This is why they're quite happy. They would be perfectly happy to see art censored if it doesn't send the right moral message. You know, whereas I go along with the Oscar Wilde idea, as he wrote in The Picture of Dorian Gray, that, you know, there is no such thing as a, a moral or an immoral book. You know, books are well-written or badly written, that is all, you know. And that's, that's and it's, you know, and because they so, they're so tied up in language, they are also very ill-equipped to deal with the visual arts and, and certainly dance, but also also painting and sculpture. They, they can't really um, get their heads around it. And, and so and so they, they train themselves. I mean, you know this, like if, you, if you've done an English degree, you'll know that you're, particularly because there's this 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 trend, this, this sort of postmodern hegemony within the, the, the humanities, you just train yourself to detect the uh, the power structures or the say the homophobia or the sexism or the racism of a text and you and you and 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 that's what you do and that's how you get the the top grades or at least that was the case when I was at university and it's sort of apparently coming back I was assured that was going out of fashion but maybe not not now um, and that's not how you appreciate art it's 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 that's a philistine's approach to art but the problem is if the academy is now promoting philistinism as the norm. Uh, that's why it it, it, do, it doesn't work anymore. It's you know you end up leaving university less well educated, less well able to appreciate artistic work than when you got there, which is which is uh, really really sad. A friend of mine recently, who I have a lot of respect for, so I, I want to talk nicely about, but she's a professor, and she asked me recently to join some sort of talk online, you know, just a uh, what's it called, Clubhouse app thing. Uh, and oh, yeah. it, was, it was a room um, about inclusive speech, and I said, "Oh, thank you so much for the invite, but it's it's not really something that I agree with or, or like or anything like that." And then she said, "But why? It's just it's just about." using words that don't offend people and are polite. And I didn't really have, I don't have the words uh, or the knowledge that you have. So I didn't know what to say in that in that respect. I just said, no, but I just don't like it. And she was going, well, maybe you could open your eyes. And everything she was saying yeah. sounded right. So what could I have said? In so, that? Well, this, this is why I wrote the book. This is one yeah. of the major reasons, because I think people feel intimidated by it, particularly when people with academic credentials are throwing a lot of jargon at you and you don't know really how to get around that. I wanted to, you know, Clearly, I mean, I'm, I'm all about clarity when it comes to writing. I don't believe in this obscurantist approach that academics take. So the book is written in a very accessible, clear way. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll explain. In other words, it explains what you already know, I suppose. You know, we all already know the reasons why that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and the, the, you know, firstly, it draws a very clear, I'm drawing a very clear distinction between politeness, which I think is a good thing. And compelled speech, which I think is bad, because the latter is connected to an authoritarian measure, uh, an authoritarian instinct. And uh, there is a difference between the kind of voluntary social contract that we all oblige, you know, we all go along with, which is that we're not going to uh, use uh, racial epithets and anti-gay epithets and all, all the rest of it in polite society. But we always have the choice to do so in a free society. We can violate that social contract, but we face the consequences of doing so, which is, you know, criticism, ostracism 
protest, ridicule, all, all the other all things that come with that. We've reached a societal consensus on polite speech and there's always rough edges around that and there's always points of contention, but we broadly speaking have and there are consequences uh, for transgressing it, but we should have that right. And this is what I'm trying to say. Um, we, we, we need to have, particularly if you're in the arts, if you're in comedy, um, but just generally speaking, sometimes you might want to be rude. Sometimes you might want to cause offence. There might be, and that should be your right and it should be the subject's right to treat you accordingly. Uh, you know, if someone says something offensive around me or to me, I just simply won't associate with that person. And, I, you know, and that's that's my choice, you know. Mm. Uh, and it, 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 it comes out down to a balance because where all this stuff leads, when it comes to we must all use inclusive language, we must all use etc. That language is not inclusive. The language they're describing is actually exclusive. It, it, it excludes certain people for one thing. But it's also part of a broader... Uh, problem of of, of of this idea that that language creates our reality and 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 that we we if, if everyone just said the right words if they just spoke in the right way mm. all of society's ills would somehow dissipate and the opposite is true we need to be able to hear um from objectionable people and we need to know who they are we need to know what they say and they need to be able to be challenged uh in order for pro progress to be made no progress is made if we and you know i, I imagine if that was a workshop about inclusive language it will be, be taking a certain side in this current debate that is raging between extreme trans activists and gender critical feminists. And like it or not, that is a dispute where both sides have a viewpoint and the viewpoints are not compatible. Mm -hmm. uh, like it or not, that means that we are in a situation where we require more debate, not less, more discussion. If they are taking a particular side on that issue, see, for instance, I don't believe that language should be imposed. I think language evolves. Um, I believe in the evolution of language. Well, that's just the truth. If, for instance, the word they as a singular pronoun naturally evolves in our language, I would never have a problem using it. It simply hasn't. And yet dictionaries, because the dictionaries are staffed by woke individuals, they're changing definitions artificially, not to reflect common usage, but to reflect what they wish the words meant. The truth is that the vast majority of people in the country only use they as a singular plural in a colloquial context when the gender of the person is unknown and it's almost unconscious. But if they're using it specifically about an individual, they won't use it. And if they hear it used, they won't quite understand it and it will take a while for them to sort of catch on. Now, it might evolve that way, like I say, and that won't be a problem. It hasn't. And it probably won't. It probably won't catch on. That's, there's a reason why that usage is obsolete. There's a reason why it faded out of the language. You know, mm. I keep hearing people saying, well, Jane Austen used it. Shakespeare used it. Yeah. Hundreds of years ago, that's, you know, Shakespeare used thee and thy. We don't use that. We don't say, well, therefore, we must all use thee and thy. It doesn't make sense. So, um, no, I think the, the idea of the imposition of language comes from a, an authoritarian basis, which we shouldn't be encouraging anyway. Uh, and the idea uh, of the evolution of languages is, is, is perfectly fine. But when you have workshops dictating which terms must be used, I mean, for God's sake, was it Merriam-Webster Dictionary artificially changed the definition of racism? Everyone knows what racism means. It's prejudice or hatred towards people because of their skin colour or race. Everyone knows this. For the woke mindset, it doesn't mean that. It's a postmodern definition. It's an equation, yeah. which is preju pre it equals, it's prejudice plus power. That's, that's what race is. It's an equation. Pre but that's, that usage is not used by anyone. It's used by academics. It's used by a few people in their niche little echo chambers. It is not generally accepted. And because it's not generally used that way, there's no way that the Merriam-Webster Dictionary should be should be pretending that that is common usage. But now that they've done that, because they've infiltrated the dictionaries, they, people can point to it and say, oh, well, that's the definition. You see, you see how this works. Mm -hmm. And this is, this, this, this is the program. This is 
this is how it this is how it works this is why we use the word orwellian to describe this do you worry are are you concerned that it could go you know we talk about orwellian could it go that way well a- anyone who knows anything about history knows that civilizations fall and everyone knows that that authoritarianism can always rise and it will rise in places where you least expected it so that is you know that would be very myopic uh not to acknowledge that i remember attending a workshop um uh with a playwright called philip ridley and uh, he was talking about one of his plays in which he had He'd taken a real life story in a war torn area. I wish I could remember the country, but it was a, a, a war torn area in the develop in the, the developing world where a woman had been basically, I, I think, just beaten to death in a shop. You know, something it was really gruesome. It was it was mm. really horrible. He transposed that into like Sainsbury's or something. So in the play, it's described as happening in Sainsbury's or a, um, a supermarket. And when he first wrote it, the people who were giving him feedback on the script were saying, well, no one's going to believe that. You know, someone someone doesn't get beaten to death in Sainsbury. You don't get this sort of brutal. And his whole point was that's because we are so arrogant that we think in our culture we 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 won't lose this this civilization that we've got. That that civilization won't break down. We know it happens in other countries, and we say yeah, but there's a sort of implication that well they're the savages, right? They're Mm. they're they're not developed. There's a sort of soft racism going on with that, and that's the point he was trying to make. Is actually. We're very arrogant and we think because because at, at the moment we have a civilization of, you know, where we can talk and we discuss and we don't resort to violence and all the rest of it. Well, no, we're still human beings and we are no different from human beings anywhere else in any other part of the country. We're not even different from human beings who lived hundreds of years ago. We are biologically the same. We have the same instincts. If you know about literature, that's another great thing about literature. You know that human emotions, jealousies, bitterness, rivalries, love hate all the rest of it is transhistorical it doesn't matter where you are we we all have that you can read something in the iliad and 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 it can touch you because you have felt the same and that's a weird feeling like arnold um oh who was matthew arnold wrote about this in uh, the, the the poem dover beach where he's standing on the mm. the beach and he hears the shores and he and he imagines it as being the same as the aegean all those years ago and sophocles hearing the sh- and it's it's that it's that idea that human beings it's cross cultural transhistorical so mm. the idea that we are in this again it comes down to this arrogance we're in this unique narcissistic worldview where we've got it right everything's right nothing can collapse well no and if you read dystopian fiction you'll know that it can happen that said i don't believe in being alarmist i don't believe in talking about a free speech crisis i don't believe in talking about gulags or show trials that we're 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 heading that way because i I think we're a long way from that what i'm arguing in the book is that we are seeing the um the cracks opening in in what i describe as the barricade that we erect uh, to protect our civilization, the crack, cracks are opening, the fissures are widening, and unless if we are complacent, that's where the danger lies. And there are already things that have gone too far. We should not be, we, we cannot call ourselves a free society, a free liberal democracy, if the police are routinely investigating people for non-crime. That mm. simply cannot be the case. So we have to change that. But there is no appetite amongst politicians to stand up and say, no, we need to repeal those kind of laws. The College of Policing needs to change its guidelines. There is no gu- there is no mm. appetite for those kind of things. And in fact, it's going the other way. We're too scared. Uh, what with the SNP. They're too scared because, it, because, of course, as you say, what happens is, like with your uh, situation with the workshop, where uh, your reservations and hesitancy about this is interpreted as being, well, well therefore you don't support inclusivity. Mm. You, you want to be horrible to minorities. That's not what your reservation is. Um, mm. Similarly, if you stand up, if, it, if an MP were to stand up in Parliament and say, we need to repeal elements of the public order legislation, elements of the uh, Communications Act, which deem anything grossly offensive, whatever that means, uh, to be criminal, um, then people will say, well, you obviously support the, you want racists to go around saying racist things. You're obviously a racist. That's the yeah. level of, it, it's, it's so 
basic again it goes back to this infantile way of thinking it's such a basic childish on that note i had um so i've had an experience i make documentaries as like a presenter on screen you know like louis threw but mm. infinitely less good and famous but um <laughs> but don't but, do you yourself know, down <laughs> well he's just very so. good and famous so it's still it's still something but i was i was making those and i was trying to make them and and I got told by production company after production company, I'm talking about maybe 100 or so over a few years, every single mm. one, or maybe 99%, every single meeting at some point in the meeting, we all know what's about to be said. We're all waiting for yeah. that. And then they'll come out and say, uh, the thing is, we can't really be seen to be working with a, a white male, especially middle class Amazing. Uh, presenter. So it's happened over and over and over again. And I started at first, because this is what happens. And this, I'm going to get to a question in a bit. So, so what seems to happen is, I, I wasn't I was never really woke but I wasn't against that kind of stuff um, and then that happened and it happened for a year or two um, where I was saying to myself well good I feel good about myself and I was sort of sneakily telling people very subtly in a way that would make me seem quite heroic and uh, you know a bit of a victim but a hero for the cause and I'm helping people and then I started to see the statistics which showed that on-screen talent uh, across British TV channels um, minorities were doubly overrepresented and white men were actually the least represented on screen. And I thought, oh, okay, that doesn't sound right. And then I'm on Twitter and there's loads of people who are from minorities or white who, who are uh, doing well themselves or not. All sorts of people all saying, when are they going to have equality on screen on TV? And I'm thinking, hang yeah. on, I know that's not true. And I know that they're bending over backwards because they literally said to me in the production company meetings, they would say like, would you mind if we take your idea and we use a minority as the presenter on screen, you can still be behind. And I always said no, because it's the most insulting thing I've ever heard. Yeah, of course it is. Yeah. But obviously, but that's that's an example of where observable reality is denied. The, the, the woke are very adept at gaslighting. Yeah. Uh, there is absolutely no doubt. Uh, that that is the case. I mean, we know that the, the BBC recently said they're going to bet, spend another hundred million trying to improve those statistics. Why do you need to improve it? Like, like you say, minority groups are already statistically and proportionately overrepresented in terms of if you take the national population. Why don't we actually give a damn about yeah. uh, you know what the percentages yeah. are? And I, I wouldn't just care hu- if it wasn't my job. It's the only reason I care. Just hire the best people for the job. Like that's yeah. all it is. Unless you're saying that the BBC is staffed by racists, in which case, yeah, well, you need to do something about that. I know that it's not. Therefore, just leave them to it to hire the best people. Don't hire people on the basis of their sexuality or what yeah. anything else. Just just the people who are good at the job. And the, and what you'll find if you do that is you naturally get a balance. You will naturally get. You know, it will just work out quite quite naturally like that. So you know, it's it's incredible to me this denial of reality to claim that. The BBC is systemically racist. It's not. It's systemically woke. It's got to. It's got to deal with that. That's the real problem. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is why I started this podcast as well because I just couldn't, for the life of me, I offered, I made the documentaries myself, and I gave. I said, "Have them for free now," and they were like, "We can't mm. do that now. It's going to look bad to have a new young white guy who can't do it." Can't you pull the Jewish thing? The I did. Thing, oh, I did, and people, right, people, okay, yeah, yeah. people laughed at me. I didn't want to do that because, again, I hate that. I hate having to, as you can imagine, I hate having to do it. You, you end up playing their game, but it's like that's what yeah. David Baddiel's new book is about, isn't it? Yes. Jews don't count. The, 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 the whole idea is actually because they say because the woke don't really see Jews as a, a marginalized group or a or a minority group We're super even though white. they just but they just are a minority like it's it's, it's just nuts that you can yeah. just deny that not just that they are the most uh they have the, the most hate crimes uh in both america and in the uk are, are against yeah. jewish people doesn't matter doesn't yeah. matter does it because you're not you're not on the intersectional hierarchy it's so yeah. weird that sort of the blind spots that they have in the way that they for instance when they talk about 
uh, achievement, for instance, at, a, at, at higher education. They just they conflate Asian Americans with white Americans because that will that will mess up their narrative that people of color do badly because uh-huh. so they say that Asians don't really count as people of color because of course they perform better than any ethnic group yeah. um so it's it's and they 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 apply these ideas that outcome is the indicator is is evidence of prejudice always so so if um if um white people do better in a certain field uh, than black people or if if men do better than women then that must mean racism or sex and that's the only explanation but they don't apply that same logic to for instance uh uh well actually let's take education girls outperform boys and have done for the last 25 years girls have outperformed boys in school and at undergraduate level across the board no one's saying well maybe the education system in the uk is systemically anti-male must be that must be the reason Mm. no one's saying that no one's saying that prisons and the justice system is systemically anti-male because the vast majority of people who go to prison are men no one says that because they don't, they only apply the logic where they, where it suits them. Hmm. Uh, it's 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 a completely anti-factual counter enlightenment movement. That's what it is. It has no interest in facts. In fact, facts get in the way. Hmm. Uh, it's that's why that's why the analogy of the religion works because it is it is people accepting untruths, faith-based positions without uncritically, just completely uncritically accepting them. And if you challenge it, you are deemed to be a heretic. I mean, that's why that analogy works. I think. I think some people listening to this podcast, because this podcast is not explicitly that kind of podcast. So I think that a lot of people are sort of somewhere in the middle on all of these these uh, themes. So mm. I think that it, might, it might get a lot of people who wouldn't usually have read your book, who are listening to this, who are sort of starting to get it and starting, maybe they will actually engage, hopefully. Well, I, I, I hope so, because also everyone gets it in the end. I mean, I've, I've, mm. I've known a lot of people who, who express great sympathies for the woke movement and even describe themselves as woke. I mean, there's this myth that woke is just a right wing slur. Whereas, of course, two years ago, everyone who was woke was calling themselves woke, yeah. but they're now pretending they never did. Because, yeah. again, they go they go with the gaslighting and they pretend there's not this thing called the Internet where we can check, you know, where we can just Google all these endless Guardian articles talking about wokeness and how woke they were. They'll just pretend that didn't exist. They'll memory hole that. It's even worse than memory holding it because they're not actually getting rid of it. They're just stating again and again it's not true. They are like Donald Trump. They just say the exact opposite of what happened, even though you can check. It's really, really weird. Anyway, so um, but they all come around eventually, and because it bites them eventually. I know you've had yeah. Helen Lewis on the show, for instance, mm-hmm. and now it's 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 bit her. You know, she's been she's been um, a couple of tweets. That's all it took. For her voice to be removed from a computer game, right? She was so careful on the show as well. I, I don't know if this was before was or she? after the computer game stuff, but but oh, yeah, of of the people who speak against sort of woke movement, she was probably the most careful because she's sees herself as a very much a progressive, I think, um, and still. Well, so do I. Yeah, <laughs> like this is the point. She was more careful than you, though. <laughs> I'm I'm not careful. You're right, um, but but and I understand why you'd want to be careful because again, it's that thing of well. You know, you see the kind of Katie Hopkins of the world uh, coming out, complaining about free speech and all the rest. Of it, and you don't want to be aligned with that person. But the thing is, as I say in the book, you can't just surrender. your. You, a, a, an idea doesn't become a bad idea because bad people latch onto it. Right. If you have a sincerely held belief, you don't surrender that belief on the basis of someone you don't like taking hold of the same belief. That's to give them way too much power. The principle is much higher than any individual. The principle of free speech is, is, is not even about left and right. It's, it's, it's about all of us yeah. um but yeah it does this thing now this thing about how it will eventually like there's always what james Lindsay talks about a woke a woke tipping point that uh, and actually i'm confident that the reason why it won't win out it won't win out because nothing ever does you know everything always changes anyway but it won't win out quite soon because i think when when it starts to bite people themselves you know they'll they will they will t- if you take for instance um 
there's a quite well-known um, comedy writer, producer person who uh, has set up a thing called WokeyLeaks on um, Spectator. Now, this is a site where if you are part of a woke industry, such as the BBC, such as the arts, uh, such as comedy, comedy is incredibly woke. Podcasting. Podcasting, yeah. Mm. If you're part of those industries and you have a, a ridiculous story from within, you can leak it to WokeyLeaks. And so yeah. people email it to and And when, when I tweeted about this, lots of people saying, oh, great, so another right-wing snowflake who's complaining. Mm. I'm like, you're so wrong about this. The person who is behind this is is not only left but is known for being extremely left wing is uh, you know that you are so wrong it's someone from within who is getting so sick of it but can't be open can't can't reveal their name i was going to ask you then so obviously like the thing that turned me and it is it bites you and then you turn and it's when and it comes turn, to you yeah. it's, it's such an old i mean it's the oldest expression in time isn't it yeah. of like it's when they come for you it's when they come for you and again i wasn't bothered because i am a selfish human being because in in many ways because most of us are and i wasn't that bothered about it I thought, okay it's a bit much but it doesn't bother me and then i couldn't get a job so that's it yeah yeah did something happen to you that sort of moved you that way or were you just or was it gradual i've just always been uh, we're aware from my reading of history and literature that, that freedoms are never secure and always have to be continually fought for in any successive generation. I've, I've always been aware of that. I've seen the rise of this movement from the start and I've criticized, criticized it from the start. And when I have done in the past, when I've done so, I've often been accused of fanning the flames of a culture war. When, of course, what I'm doing is criticizing a culture war. I've been accused of exaggerating a few extremists on university campuses and saying that this is the yeah. norm you'll notice over the past couple of years that accusation really comes my way now and it can't can it because everyone can see the evidence the evidence of what i've been talking about is now clear for everyone to see so i just don't get that accusation anymore and that's what that's that's it's good to be vindicated but i also wish i was wrong yeah, you know I, I mean I, I did see a lot of this coming when when the coronavirus hit and everyone was saying well no one's going to care about the culture war stuff anymore it's over the culture war's over i wrote an article saying this is not going to kill the culture wars this is going to exacerbate the culture wars. And I was right. And I hate the fact that I was proven right. I would have absolutely loved it to kill off the culture wars. I, I want nothing better than for us to return to this ideal of social liberalism. Uh, and, 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 and this, you know, I, I want us to go back to that, not even go back because this is a progressive idea. I want us to move forward to this and not to unpick all of the achievements of the civil rights movement since the 1960s and all of the progress we've made in terms of racism and other forms of discrimination, which is what this movement does, but it couches it in the language of progression. It's a regressive movement that, that mm. disguises itself. And that's that's why it's like a Trojan horse and you have to be very wary of it. It's also why people are seduced by it. And I understand why, because they, they use phrases like anti-racism, but the doctrine of anti-racism is a racist doctrine. The mm. doctrine of anti-racism states that all white people are inherently complicit in white supremacy, whether they like it or not. All people of colour will always be persecuted, whether they like it or not. Uh, if there is racism between ethnic groups, that's just performative whiteness. There's all of this stuff that, 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 they, that they believe, and they couch this under the phrase anti-racism, right? But of course, it's not anti-racism. Most people, when they say anti-racism, they mean being opposed to racism, which is what mm. I am, what you are, right? Mm. But an anti-racist is is not the same thing but of course by using that language they can say what are you not anti-racist then is that what you're saying it's like black lives matter what you don't think black lives matter no i just got some concerns about some of the the movement's beliefs but you see that's the it's a linguistic trick uh, as i wrote in an article for the spectator in order to be authentically opposed to racism you have to be opposed to anti-racism that's the that is the linguistic minefield we are now facing and that's why it's important to write about it and talk about it. that's why i wanted to write a very very clear 
book on yeah. the problems of free speech. And similarly, I'm doing the same about the, the culture war because they set all these landmines, uh, these linguistic landmines along the way. And it was so easy to trip over and to be accused of, of being racist and everyone hates. And, and the thing is, everyone in most anyone in civilized society hates the idea of being branded as racist because because it's not acceptable in our society this is the ironic thing the very fact that the smear of racist is so effective is because we live in a society that is not underpinned by racism as they claim you know so so the very fact that they can use their cancel culture the very fact that they can threaten people with these smears and these slurs that are unsubstantiated is because they are wrong their actions prove the 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 their, the shoddy foundation upon which their their philosophy lies. That's the that's the massive irony about all this. And that's why I actually I find Titania is such a fantastic invention because it allows people like me to to get a sort of a, a look into what it's like or what these people are like um, without getting as angry. I'm, it's more of like a, oh, no. at least someone else feels this way. No, I understand that. I think I think mm. the impulse to anger is natural, but it's also something to be guarded against. You know, I think if because yeah. what if you're angry, you're not you're not able to fight back against it in any uh, effective way. And, and also they will weaponize your anger against you and, and, mm-hmm. and, and you'll be the one who's branded as unreasonable and, and all the rest of it. So yeah. it, it is, it is about, I mean, the trouble is that they're not, they're not fighting on a level playing field. They're not, they're not, they're not prepared to play by the same tactics. They, they will use underhand tactics. They will call you racist. They will call you homophobe. They will do all these horrible, they'll call you fascist, even a Nazi and white supremacist. Some of the very worst things that you can call someone, I mean, this is appalling bullying behavior. Then I can't. Mm. It would never even occur to me to 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 smear another human being like that. It's just simply not in my nature, and I don't think it's in the nature of most people. I just think that that kind of bullying mindset, for some reason, the woke movement attracts that kind of person, and mm. I don't know why it is. And and uh, they're just horrible. I mean, it's like this thing about you know, when people put pronouns in their bio on Twitter. A lot of people do that from a good place. Uh, you know, uh, when intention, and a lot of people who do it are perfectly nice people, but you just get—you know—it's difficult to escape the conclusion that a lot of people who do it are just vicious people. It's like a marker of of malevolence. You know, when, whenever I get a threat, whenever I get a direct threat or a really aggressive, vile post my way, I know there's going to be pronouns in that bio. I, yeah. I, you know, it's—I'm never wrong, and I click through and I see it. And I think so. This is so weird, isn't it? It's—it's it's people who are. Because it's a signifier of virtue. It's saying, look, I'm, I'm one of the good guys. I'm ideologically on side. And I've got a rainbow flag as well to prove that I'm good. And that means they don't have to behave in a way that's good. It means they can behave like monsters because they've got, they've got the garb of respectability. And that's what it is. And, and so therefore, you know, and, and of course, you, you end up with this because everyone has recognised this. Like, it's so common. You know that if there are pronouns in the bio, it's probably going to be a vicious, nasty piece of work, right? Mm. And, and the problem with that is then those people who do have pronouns in the bio who are not, who are actually very nice people, who genuinely just want to be more inclusive or whatever, they get smeared and by association. You see what I mean? So it's always best not to make assumptions, even, even in situations like that. It's, it's probably mm. best not to make assumptions, but it's hard. It is hard when you've been trolled for the 10th time consecutively in an hour and all of these people are uh, card-carrying woke activists with pronouns in their bio. It's hard not to jump to the conclusion that they're all sociopaths you know it's it's hard not to read but you have to guard against it because that that too is a fallacy yeah i feel we live in a society now that trades on i guess empathy so like if you're if you're more empathetic you win that's what it is so if you can if you but can they're not empathetic your... well i know but that's they're, that's they're, what they're, i mean they're trying to show that they are and they're not because they're because they're not 
Yeah. You don't have to advertise your capacity for empathy if you have empathy. Yeah. I, th- I think there is a genuine uh, degree of sociopathy within the woke movement. I think these are largely people who, or a lot of them, well, I know a lot of them that I've seen have quite clearly no capacity for human empathy. They, they cannot understand why you shouldn't hurt other people. They cannot understand why you should be mm. nice to, other, to fellow human beings. It just doesn't cross their mind. Yeah. Um, and that's that's a, that's that is has always existed. There have always been people like that, and sometimes historically, certain movements come along that attract those kinds of people to its ranks. That just yeah. happens from time to time, and we're just seeing that now. Um, you know, so uh, and again, let's emphasize this. That doesn't mean that everyone who is quote unquote woke fits into that category. There are some no. uh, good people with good intentions within that movement uh, who probably despair at some of the excesses of their colleagues. Um, but unfortunately, there is a preponderance. That's the problem. Is that yeah. it's 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 the, it's most of them uh, can be pretty vile. I had a sociopath on the show actually, and she she is a little bit woke. She is a bit that way. Yeah. So, so she and she actually knows she's a sociopath and is diagnosed as such. And, and yeah, 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 that was her thing. Like she's a sociopath. Yeah, she talks about, it, it, you know. I, f- I find it very interesting. I mean, I, I've done uh, a lot of research on a particular author, uh, a novelist. Um, who writes in his, uh, you know, I had access to his old diaries and letters and he continually writes this thing about, I'm just not capable of feeling sorry for or affection for anyone. I just don't, mm. I can't do it. And I just think, I feel that's really sad. You know, I, I don't, I, I think it's a shame. Um, yeah. But it, but yeah. it's but it's clearly something that, that that there's always a proportion of the population that, that have that. I think the key is just not, don't let those people be in charge, right? Like, like yeah. I think I think the the, yeah. the people we vote in, the people we want in charge of our higher education institutions, for instance, we don't want a bunch of sociopaths. There's too many sociopaths in higher education, clearly, and we we we, we don't really want that. We, I had a guy. I think you'll find this funny as well. I had a guy on who his thing was, you know, he's a he's a black gay porn star, and he was talking about racism in the porn industry. I just thought that might mm-hmm. be interesting and edgy and stuff. But he was very very woke, and the more he spoke, it got more and more woke. And I was like, oh god, he's really into this stuff. And he was saying that he's done with having to like listen to excuses and that it's no longer an excuse. Like ignorance is not an excuse. If somebody says something they don't realize is offensive to to black people or gay people or porn stars or whatever it is, there's no longer any excuse. We have to like throw them out or put them away. I, he was very aggressive and very sure about this and nobody should ever yeah. make a mistake. And then towards the end of the podcast, he said, um, the reason we have to be so aggressive if, if you look at the Holocaust, if the Jews had actually fought back, they might have got out of there, which he isn't to know. But that's an anti-Semitic trope, the idea yeah. that sort of othering the Jews, that they were so weak yeah, yeah, yeah. that they didn't. And they did fight back. Of course they did. They, but it sort of makes them inhuman, some unhuman. So, that, yeah. So he's inadvertently undermined his own point. Yeah. Because well, I didn't say anything. Right, <laughs> I didn't yeah. want to be well, rude. But <laughs> maybe you have to be. Maybe you have to point out. You, I mean, you, there would have been a way to say it without being rude. But it's hard, isn't it? Because he's your guest, yeah. you know, and, yeah. you know, yeah. it, it, you know, you don't want to do that. Um, but yeah, sure. But, but, I've been disagreeing thing... with you the whole for, for an hour and I haven't said anything. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, feel I free. Feel free to be as ru- rude as you like. You bastard. No, because that go for it. Honestly, it's fine. But that's the that's the point is that as human beings, we are bound to cause offense inadvertently at some point. Right. Yeah. And if we didn't, we wouldn't be human beings. If we if we're not able to make mistakes then the business of living is just uh, reduced to an absolute nightmare. Um, And this idea that there is no such thing as intent, you know, this is why a professor who quotes a poem which contains the N-word will then be fired for being racist? No, he's quoting a poem. Context matters. Intent matters. He's not using a term in a racist way. 
You know, mm. someone can say something inadvertently homophobic to me. I'm not going to scream that they're a homophobe and go to the police and demand that they're arrested. It's perfectly possible to yeah. be inadvertently offensive. What adults do is if someone, a friend, say, or a colleague, says something and it inadvertently causes offence, you talk to them about it and you say, look, what you said there upset me and this is why. Let's go and have a drink and let's talk about it. And you resolve it and that's what adults do. But what the new infantile uh, woke culture does is it'll take a screenshot of the email where you cause the offence and it'll publicly shame you and it'll make sure you get fired and it'll say that you are now a sinner mm. and there is no possibility of redemption and you're out of the club. And that's the difference. It's it's mm. um, it's it's absolutely horrible and grisly. I, I also, and this is why as well, no one is not going to win because there is literally no one who you couldn't rake through everything they've ever said, every email, every tweet, every right. text, and you couldn't discredit them because we have all said things we regret. And we've all said things because we, that's how you develop, you know? Um, the idea, again, this illusion that these people think they are pure, incapable of making mistakes, incapable of causing offence. As you say, your guest just proved it perfectly. Comes out with an anti-Semitic trope without realising it. I have no doubt he's not an anti-Semite, right? Yeah. Um, but but the, and and you know the difference. You know the difference between someone saying that because they don't like Jews and someone yeah. saying that because they just misunderstand history. Yeah. That's a, that's you you know the difference, and we kind of know it instinctively, don't we? We don't need to. We you know it's very clear to me when someone uses the word faggot, whether they're using it um, out of a place of hatred or not. It's very clear if someone uses it to me to degrade and hurt me and and what that is. It's it's very very clear if someone uses it in a jokey way or for whatever reason. Um, I don't need to be educated about what the difference is there. And I don't want this hard and fast rule that anyone who uses that word must be cast out of polite society. I don't want to live in that world. No, me neither. Do you have another 10 minutes or so? Because I haven't got onto Titania at all. And I love Titania. Yeah, we can talk about that. I mean, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're aware that uh, I talk about her a lot. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's why I didn't. And, and, that's why I, I went with the first and, hour of not of not mentioning her much. Yeah, no. You're, you're bored of well talking there. about Titania, aren't you? You're done with Titania. Do you know that's what fine. it's like? I I, yeah. I was recently watching a, an interview with Gracie Fields. Do you know Gracie Fields? No. The um, she was she well she was one of the most famous uh, singers and movie stars of the 1930s and 40s, hmm. and she um she uh, she 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 toured around entertaining the troops during the war. She's like a kind of Vera Lynn figure in that way, although she's a working class Rochester she's really funny like she's just her comic timing is utterly brilliant and had an incredible operatic singing voice but she got very known for singing this song sally well there were three songs that she was really known for sally uh the biggest aspidistra in the world and walter walter these three songs and then in this interview she's talking about how she hates the songs she can't stand them she always used to say if i have to sing sally again it's just but she yeah. never from 1931 to when she died in what 1980 around then she never did a performance without singing sally and because because that was her song and she was known for it and everyone wanted it and she you know she obliged but she hated it and there's even a great interview with parkinson in 1978 where he says um could you sing the biggest aspidistra in the world for us and she says oh well i i don't want to but i will i mean oh it's like that and it's yeah, really yeah. funny and i feel a bit like that with titania just insofar as like you know i've i've, I've written lots of comedy stuff i've written different characters uh, mm. i've done various things this is the thing that people always want me to talk about. I guess that's inevitable, isn't it? But uh, maybe I'll have to kill her off. Maybe that's the only <laughs> way. Like, maybe maybe that's what I'll have to do. I'll just have to... One day mm. I'll post a picture of her and she's hanged herself or something. I don't know. It was just all too much. And... Or, I, well, I really like this idea of her going, going, um, getting uh, red-pilled. Uh, you know, I, th I think, like, her becoming a trad wife and, and, <laughs> I, and just marrying... I, I, I think that might be the way to do it. But at some point, look, I've done yeah. two books as her. Yeah. Uh, the Twitter thing's still going... Um, 
uh, and uh, you know I've, I've written various articles as her and all the rest of it and we've got the live show well I do want to do the live show you know that was meant to be last March it's going to be it was going to be this March um, that's obviously because of the virus has been postponed so well and and we've got uh, you know Alice Marshall who is the actor who plays her is just so brilliant mm. and when we did the run at the Edinburgh Fringe in 2019 by the end of the run we got it so right it was so it was working so well and and then we got picked up for the tour and it was so you know so there's just the fun of doing something like that and that's different yeah. than doing the tweets i guess you know so so i do want to there are avenues that i can explore with her yeah. but i don't want to I, if i'm talking about titania in five years time i'll, I'll just go mad I, yeah. I really will i was thinking of radiohead and creep <laughs> they hated creep didn't they yeah yeah well i don't you know it's a good song isn't it but you know it's that's always going to be the case every time the the same song yeah exactly i mean i know i'm friends with a musician who had a big hit early in his career and he says the same thing he's got a similar feeling about that same song i I don't want to start naming name dropping no i want to know who it is don't want to start that actually this is a better one uh and again i can't name drop but i had a um an incident with a guy who had a major number one hit in the uk and america and um he, uh, he, he, and and but I, I've spoken to other people who know him, and he's so bitter about it. He never wants to talk about it. He gets really angry whenever he's interviewed and someone mentions it. But it's the only thing he's famous for. But it also made him a millionaire. And you think, well, yeah. he actually he actually shouted at me in a pub one day. But we won't go into that. But but it's um, it's just it's. I think people get haunted by their successes. I think yeah. sometimes, uh, you know, because it, we've all got so much in us and so much creativity, and 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 yet there's always going to be one thing that people know you for, and it's it's um. It's the same with actors getting typecast. You know, you know. I think once Kenneth Williams started doing the Carry On films, he's always going to be in those roles, even though mm-hmm. he had a much wider range than you would assume. You know, mm-hmm. and I guess you, that's that's just the curse of you know. Um, but that's not to say that that one thing that you're known for is the best thing you've ever done. It's just the thing that caught on. It's just the thing that caught a zeitgeist at the right time, and that's that was the case with Titania, I think. If you do end up cancelling her account, can I can I have it? Yeah, why don't you just look after the account? Why don't you do it? I would change it to my name and then maybe half of the followers would leave, but I'd still have a huge following then. Yeah, there you go. I mean, I look, I'm still, I still tweet every now and then, but I'm not involved. Like I used to read all the responses and, and argue with people and do all that, which was fun. I'd rarely do that now. I, I don't look at the responses. I don't know what people are saying. I don't care. I, 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 I use it now. If, if something happens in the, in the news that I feel she would really comment on and I think it's something funny to say or I think it's something that makes a point in a, in a satirical way. It doesn't even have to be funny, actually. I think, I think that's the great thing about satire. You're, you're, you're exposing the folly. Um, it's not a joke. This is the weird thing. People think it's all about jokes. Um, people talk about, why doesn't she have a second joke? It's like, well, uh, she is a satirical representation of a monomaniacal character who is obsessed with one thing. Yeah. That's not the same as a comedian telling a series of jokes. Of course, she repeatedly talks about the same thing. She has her obsessions because that's the very mindset I'm satirizing. But people are quite stupid. <laughs> you know, some people are quite stupid. People are very stupid, but not the listeners to this podcast or either. Of I'm sure your else. listeners are, are absolutely <laughs> wonderful. And I say that because I know you'll be putting a link to my book in the, yes. the description. And, and, <laughs> and of course, they will all rush out and, and buy that. They do. I don't do an intro and outro talking about it as well. I mean, they do. They do buy books and they, they message and they say, but so I think people will be buying it. Um, they, they are very stupid, though. But um, no, they're not. They're not stupid. <laughs> but the, the, the thing about Sandy, I, I know you know this already. It's, it's just that it's such an easy way into this stuff. And it's such a good way in for people who, who I know who are sort of on the fence. I've, I've always sent them to your things that are racist thread. 
because it's just the oh, sources yeah. are there. It's all there. You can't deny it anymore. It's all black and white. These are four things. Each one has four things that are racist now. And there's a new one you've got as well. Uh, what was things things I predicted? Yeah, well. yeah. And yeah. again, these are all amazing things. And and it's there. It's, it's simple, right? Yes, exactly. Because I mean, if you're if you're going around saying, oh, you know, the the social justice people will or activists will make anything racist they think racism exists in everything and then and then people will say well no what are you talking about they're not they're not going to start saying fish are racist or gardens are racist <laughs> actually yes they are right and this is the thing because it is a fundamental so any you know and it's so self-evidently absurd but when you see it it really hits you yeah. but it is the foundation of the philosophy if you look at as i said again white fragility the idea is that every possible scenario every human interaction every phenomenon has racism at its core that, so anything that you can problematize absolutely anything the question as she puts it is not uh was this situation racist the question is how did racism manifest in this situation this is an insanity you know so uh that is why um i wanted to do that thread with the receipts you know with the screenshots of all these insane uh articles and it, it is it's exhausting isn't it if you start at number one by the time you get to 10 because there's four per tweet yeah so by the time you get to ten, you think, God, that's been forty of these. Can it go on? It's over thirty now. So that's yeah. over. That's over one hundred and twenty of of just in mainstream. These are also. I'm not screenshotting weird blogs from extremists. These are mainstream national press, mainstream yeah. politicians. This is this is all the powerful people in society. This is why it is so funny and disturbing at the same time. Yeah, Twitter. This was this was the um, things I predicted thing. I think it was Twitter should have a mute white people button, which is now been was it Instagram now have Instagram. Thing. Well, no, it was a, another sticker. company added added a sticker to Instagram or something. So it's it's yeah. it's not quite as direct as that, but it's but it's the same it's the same principle. You know, the one I love is the tenth one I think where because I wrote in the book the first Titania book, which is called Woke. Uh, the first book I did this whole thing about people keep going on about Helen Keller being oh being, yeah disabled and because she obviously she couldn't see or hear and she had no limbs or whatever or no no i know that but she it's not that but that's what titania says uh and she says um it's white privilege she still wrote books she still does it's just white privilege staggering white privilege and then mm. an article in i think it was the new york times said exactly the same thing oh you just think you're you're accusing helen keller of white privilege yeah. i mean this is just bonkers and 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 you know and yeah i predicted it well not really predicted i just it's not even predictions is it i just I always think through what is the most extreme thing they could possibly say now. And I just say it. And then usually it takes about six months and, and someone will say it uh, for real. So I, I did one. I wonder if this will come true. I did one. It's in the new book, actually. It's in the, the, the second children, the children's book that Tanya wrote, mm. where she says, because white people are inherently racist, any white person who is not being racist is therefore being racist um, I, I, because they're, they're appropriating non-racist <laughs> culture. So, no, it's torturous and it makes no sense. I bet it happens though. I bet. I bet. I bet, I bet someone like. I. I don't. I don't think it's possible for me to come up with something that won't come true. Mm. I don't think you know. And and part of the fun of it is that you know I can satirize the existing ideologies. So, for instance, I did a big thread about how if if you are ill, you should not try and be cured. You should not. You should close all hospitals, all doctor surgeries, because that's part of your identity is as an ill person. And illness is part of your, and you should not attempt to eliminate your illness. Um, and, and now, but that is actually the exact same philosophy behind fat studies, 
which is that you should not attempt to eliminate your fatness because fatness is part of your identity. And any mm. suggestion that there is any medical problem with being uh, morbidly obese is actually perpetuating institutional power yeah. structures of a white patriarchal, his, cisgender, whatever, you know, usual yeah. stuff. So it's the same principle. And I'm just satirizing that by applying it to something else. But again, when you do that, eventually someone will someone will come along and say it. One of my best friends is a, is a personal trainer and he's having so much difficulty with like how to phrase posts and things because people are coming in and going oh you're saying it's a problem why do i have to lose weight and it's like it's a gym yeah. like don't sign yeah. up yeah. then don't come <laughs> this idea of fat shaming is 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 insane the first time i came across that was when i was a teacher actually so it must have been in the early days of when that was being used and i was teaching um it was the, the age of innocence i think it was um right and there's a character in the age of innocence called mrs what's it right do you know the book I know the film Scorsese, isn't it? Who's who's the woman who's a larger woman in the film? Oh. Mrs. Mingott, maybe Mrs. Mingott. Anyway, I mean, it's long... that sounds right, doesn't it? Mingott. Yeah, sounds... it's, it's a long time since I've read it. Um, but in the book, Edith Wharton really describes her flesh as volcanic. This kind of eruption, this volcanic tumbling flesh. She's like a mountain right. of right. And uh, the kids of the <laughs> sixth form girls, they were saying this is fat shaming. This is just fat. Edith Wharton is fat shaming Mrs. Mingott. It's like mm. you can't. You can't really, I mean, where, where do you go? I found it funny at the time. I laughed out loud. Because if I were a teacher today and I laughed out loud at that, I'd probably get in quite a lot of, of trouble, you know? He's always getting in trouble, Andrew Doyle. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. More than anything, I think he helped to give me the linguistic tools to be able to defend myself against people I consider to be woke bullies. Remember to get hold of his book, Free Speech. It's in the show notes with his Twitter, which is at andrewdoyle underscore com. I'm on andrewgold underscore okay on both Twitter and Instagram. And sign up to patreon.com slash andrewgold starting at just £1 a month now. You can cancel any time. And here's a snippet of the 18 minutes of bonus content that'll be available to patrons this week, where we talk about how to win arguments. So, well, the trouble is, I mean, you're, you're deploying tactics there that are outlined in Peter Bogosian and James Lindsay's book, which is called How to Have Impossible Conversations, mm-hmm. where you do seed ground, where you do sort of acknowledge the other person's strengths. And you say, th- you, it's phrases like, come on, you're an intelligent person, so you will understand that. You know, these are <laughs> rhetorical tricks that, you, that, that are used that are very effective. So the rest of that is available on Patreon. Thanks again for all the nice comments. Again, there are quite a few to get through, so I'll be quite brief. I want to start with the first ever written review that was below five stars. It was three stars from a name comprising an and sign and an at sign and the number 59. He said, in reference to my episode a few weeks ago with Stephen Knight, Stephen Knight saying interviewing Toby Young was educational really put me off wanting to know more about his podcast and about him altogether. Toby Young is a disgraceful fascist figure and that's all there is to say about him. Disconcerted, he even had the need to have him as a guest on his show. That's a bit annoying from my perspective because it seems that they either got confused and thought that this was Stephen's podcast or they believe it appropriate to punish my podcast because a guest of mine once interviewed somebody that he doesn't agree with. Oh well, let's focus on something more positive. Szeos wrote, Great podcast. Smart, funny, insightful, interesting guests, totally bingeable. I'm hooked. Thank you, Szeos. And Anil54 wrote, Fascinating. Very informative look at human nature. Andrew's podcasts are well presented. 
And finally, Shanksy1976, who is Jane, who I now know from Instagram. We've chatted a few times. Uh, she said, I had listened to Louis Theroux on a few occasions and went searching for something new. I came across Andrews and the lady with the perfect memory. I was hooked after that. I absolutely love listening to these. The conversations flow so well and I love the questions asked. Highly recommend Jane. Thanks, Jane. And she is talking about episode 26 with Rebecca Sharrock, one of 80 people in the world with her condition. She remembers everything since her time in the womb. Thank you so much for those reviews. Please keep reviewing everyone. And I'll see you all next week with the very funny and outspoken Sadia Hamid, spokesperson of the Council of Ex-Muslims, who had a shocking upbringing. See you next week. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.